Love what you hear? Be sure to check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, and even our D&D adventure. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Welcome back, everyone, to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. Where we develop and produce the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Baker. And we're going to be talking about an oldie, a goodie, an establishment in the gaming universe. You know, we're talking about the granddaddy, or maybe 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 second granddaddy of all shooters out there that is fully established, kind of the FPS realm, brought us into hell. And given us such a fun game that we're even, you know, with even with the adaptations today, you know, I'm really enjoying it. Man, Doom, like, you know, this game came out in 1993 and just the impact that it had on on gaming. I mean, this was a game for like MS-DOS. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> this is a game that like now it's still it's still around. It's still on like Nintendo Switch. You know, people are still playing this game. It's obviously had just like such a huge cultural impact. It was such a phenomenon at the time. I mean, you really like can't understate how much Doom did for first-person shooters. Well, absolutely. And, you know, you've got your rock stars coming out of it, the Carmax, Romero, who have just been these driving forces. I know for a lot that have been getting into the gaming universe or getting into game development, you know, you look at their code. Their code is so well done, and they made it open source that... People have even used it for some construction projects, saying the code works so well that they've based their own things off of it, and it works so well with everything that we're going to talk about this in the episode. It's been put on some weird devices. <laughs> it's, been, it's been around the block. Yeah, let's get into it. Let's, uh, let's talk about the game. Doom is a fast-paced first-person shooter created by id Software, which many regard as one of the most significant games in video gaming history. Alongside its predecessor, Wolfenstein 3D, these two games defined the first-person shooter genre and built the empire as we see it today. You know, Doom pioneered online distribution and technologies including 3D graphics, networked multiplayer gaming, and support for custom modifications via packaged WAD files. The old, the old WAD files, you know, they always... Old WADs. The old WAD files. Doom is the fifth first-person shooter from id Software, following in the footsteps of Hover Tank 1, Catacombs, Wolfenstein 3D, and Spear of Destiny. The game was released on PC December 10th, 1993 through Shareware. The first episode and all the multiplayer maps were released for free, offering players the ability to try the game first before they decided on whether or not they wanted to purchase it. From there, you would have to call a 1-800 number to order it, or send a mail-in order to receive it on floppy disks. The Doom source code was released in 1997 to the world, as was tradition for id Software to release the source code for a game a few years after it was released. Yeah, so this is really what established, in, in my opinion, a, a really healthy 
avenue for gaming at this time. You know, these, these are some tech giants in their own right, you know, who are releasing their source code saying, you know, this, this is for everyone. We are programmers. We obviously want to put this out and make the money, but we're also giving it to you for free to test it out. See if you want to slap that floppy in a player game or, <laughs> you know, see the source code because they, they wanted to build this environment and show like we can build a lot of stuff together. Like, yeah, we're going to make this ourselves, but we want to have everyone have the opportunity to work with this. Yeah, man. And, and that's so cool. And, you know, I'm so glad that they did that. It's like you said at the beginning of the episode, you know, this has gone beyond gaming at this point, mm-hmm. you know, using this for so many other things. And I mean, what's really cool is just like how inaccessible games were like at the time, the lengths you had to go, you know, go to the store, get them on floppy disks or however you had to do it. I mean, for them to be that open about everything when they made such a great game that they were so confident in what they had made that they actually sent it out to people and were like, look, we're confident that you're going to love this. So yeah. just test it out. You're going to buy it. See, see what you love. And, and that really boiled down to the studio. So let's talk about id software. Now, this is from Sandy Peterson, an id designer. Quote, working at id software was a lot like watching a nature documentary about jackals eating a dead zebra. They snarl and snap at each other, and it's not a pleasant process. It was founded by what would be known today as video games' first rock star, Alfonso John Romero. Romero was fascinated with video games, spending hours at his local arcade as often as he could. And by age 11, he would visit colleges every Saturday at 7.30 a.m. to ask some of the coding students what all the words and code meant. He would write down any and all information he was given and then start to code at the college. I mean, those were different days where you could just walk up to a, a university campus as an 11-year-old and be like, what, what are you doing? I'm going to do that, too. And they yeah, go, oh, this... all right, 11-year-old, you do your thing. <laughs> yeah, this 11-year-old kid just came up and started asking me about code today. It was uh, real weird. What? Imagine sitting at the lunch table and talking about that. <laughs> hey, but eventually, a student did give him a textbook on coding, so he would stop asking them so many programming questions. For the next three years, Romero would go to any computer store he could that would let him program on a computer. He was never able to save anything he created, though, since he did not have a way to copy his work onto a floppy disk. His parents then purchased him an Apple II Plus to keep him at home, so he wasn't just going into strangers' stores. Yeah, like, look, all right, this 11-year-old kid, he's going to colleges, he's talking to strangers, like, how do we get this to stop, please? Please just stay home. Just, just it's, stay with us. It's, it's like the exact opposite of every other parent in the world. Like, dude, you've been outside way too much. We don't know what you're doing. Just go in your room. Stay at the computer. Get on the computer. 20 hours a day. That's what you got to do. <laughs> so, so once he got this computer, he did nothing but program games, creating 20 games in only two years. And by age 15, he was programming for the Air Force a job he had gotten because his trigonometry teacher told someone from the Air Force about him one night over drinks. He, so, so again, 15 years old, programming for the Air Force, kind of a prodigy in the making. He would land a job at Origin Systems after high school. By this time, he had made 80-plus games and had started three companies. His career path would take him to soft disk publishing, and after some time, he was tasked with hiring some developers for a small team. He hired John Carmack, Adrian Carmack, of no relations, I think he just liked the last name, and Tom Hall to his team. Hall was already working at SoftDisk at the time, so it made it pretty easy to join that team. 
this would be the first time any one of them would collaborate with other developers to honestly create a game. So the first game they created together was Slordock, shortly after John Carmack would discover the smooth scrolling technique, or adaptive tile refresh, which would greatly improve the performance of side-scrolling games on poor graphic performance PCs. John Carmack and Hall would stay up till 5 a.m. creating a demo for Dangerous Dave and copyright infringement. They would present it to Romero, which left Romero impressed. From this, id Software was born, but they were still working at Softdisk. After work, the team would create a demo to port Super Mario World 3 to PC for Nintendo. Though Nintendo liked it, they turned it down. Yeah, because the funny thing was, Dangerous Dave and copyright infringement was kind of their first tongue-in-cheek thing. They basically stole Mario, and that's why it's Dangerous Dave in copyright infringement, because they just copied Mario. And that's when they're like, okay, we made, the, we made a ripoff of it. Let's just make a port of it and see if Nintendo will buy it. And that's pretty much how it started off. And that's so great. I mean, Nintendo, like maybe the worst one for them to go for. Yeah. Hey, not only have you guys copied our Mario game, but now you are trying to sell us something. Um, no, thank you. Yeah. The team moved id Software to a lake house in Shreveport, Louisiana. It would take their computers from work there, programming through the night and returning the computers in the morning. The team would then use the tech they developed in the Mario port for the Commander Keen trilogy in 1990, which took three months to develop all three games. The games were rather successful on the PC due to the smooth side-scrolling. Commander Keen was also important because it introduced the idea of using a game engine for multiple games. With this innovation, it would start licensing the engine to other studios, creating another source of income. In 1991, it created 12 games, with each game taking two months to create and the studio working on two games at a time. The same year, id Software, only having four employees, moved to Madison, Wisconsin. During this time, the studio would discover the NEXT, or Next, computer, costing roughly $11,000. John Carmack would order the computer and start programming on it, while the rest of the company took a two-week vacation to Disney World Carmack's idea of a vacation is apparently a week-long grind in a hotel with this computer for fun. I miss what you do. You just lock yourself up. You're like, this is, this is my love. Outside, bad. Inside, good. <laughs> this is when Wolfenstein 3D would start development. Yeah, so they, they took their time. I mean, think of it today's standards. If you had to make 12 games and you just had to put them together like two a month or two every two months kind of to just work on them and publish them, I mean, could you imagine, Assass I mean, I guess Assassin's Creed is kind of like that in today's standards, <laughs> or Call of Duty, but that's wild. Ooh, deep burns, man. Just deep burns happening here. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I couldn't imagine doing that many games that fast, but at the same time, you know, if they're really that good at code, it was probably, like, pretty smooth for them, and especially, like, considering just what goes into video games now Yeah. Uh, versus, you know, what went into them back then well and especially them developing the idea of using the same engine for multiple games so you don't have to start directly from scratch you already have that engine built that you can then apply everything to it it did not realize how bad the winters were in wisconsin and only after six months moved to texas they had to get away from those those cold cold nights wolfenstein 3d which only took two months to develop sold four thousand units in the first month of release Though it had seen success with their previous titles, 
Wolfenstein put them on the map and is known as one of the first breakthrough shooters. It took an additional two months to develop the rest of the chapters for the game. The first 10 levels of Wolfenstein were free, with the additional levels and chapters being sold to the publisher. Selling the game through shareware was extremely profitable for the studio. By the end of 1993, it had sold over 100,000 units. Now, developing the game, it took a little bit from Wolfenstein 3D and what they were already working on in their own personal lives. Because John Carmack reviewed the level design and engine of Wolfenstein 3D and sought to improve upon it, since he was already displeased with it upon release. He would start to mess with engine mods from Shadowcaster, a gothic RPG from Raven, which was created from the Wolfenstein 3D engine. There was no verticality in it, so he would work on giving the engine some depth, allowing the player to fight enemies above or below them. Once he completed these improvements, the question was, what's next for this engine? What great game will id Software create with it? The short answer, Doom. But at first, they considered another Wolfenstein game or even another Commander Keen game. The studio settled on doing something a little more original and breaking away from their previous work. I mean, they had Dangerous Dave. All the IP was there. They could have done something. That's what I'm saying. You could have just had a full Dangerous Dave line. It's it's always teetering right on competing with Nintendo and Mario. Constant lawsuits all the time, but Dangerous Dave lives on. I like to think that somewhere in the Doom lore, it's actually Dangerous Dave is Doom Guy. Doom, Doom Guy, Dangerous Dave. Hell, Dangerous, who knows? <laughs> During this process, the studio would move to their new office, known as the Black Cube which was right down the street from the apartment that they were previously working out of. During this time, the studio had just finished a Dungeons & Dragons campaign, which they had spent many years playing, and looked to that as a source of inspiration, as their most recent campaign ended in a portal to hell opening and demons flooding the world. Carmack was starting to show excitement working on a game with demons involved, so they looked to the Evil Dead and the Aliens film for further inspiration. Yeah, so... Again, they're taking what they have in the real life, which I love. Is like they finish up this D and D campaign that had been taking them a while. It ends in this oblivion esque hellscape. They're like, why don't we just let's just make this a game? Like, let's make this the landscape of what we had. Because uh, you know we love like you know Evil Dead and Aliens and getting that kind of menacing outer spacey but hellish elements to it. I think that's really cool. I agree 100%. And so lead designer Tom Hall created a design document for Doom, completing it at the end of November 1992, laying out the groundwork for six Doom episodes. Hall had great ambitions for the project, moving away from the bright corridors of Wolfenstein and putting the player in dark, dank structures. He wanted layers of lore and cinematics to lead the player through the game creating a landscape similar to the D&D realm. John Carmack would read through the document and felt there was just too much content regarding the story, famously stating, Story in a game is like story in a porn movie. It's expected to be there, but it's not that important. (laughs) Which, like, I just have such a hard time imagining any kind of professional environment, even, you know, gaming studios today, that being like an acceptable comment to make hey and it's it's the 90s we're getting wickety wild in the wickety wild 90s most of the studio would agree that john carmack's rather brute analysis was accurate so hall would have to rework the design document 
John Carmack had ideas for a more open world setting, but the studio knew that they simply did not have the memory to create a game like that, so they settled on what they knew best, level design. And by early 1993, Doom would begin development. Designer John Romero and John Carmack would start working on the level designs, and it only took it a month to create a playable alpha demo of the game. Slowly but surely, the project grew, with more enemies and weapons added, along with more complex levels created. And that really goes to show you, you know, I, I honestly, any game or any project will go through so many iterations, and it brought it down to the design work. Because artists Kevin Cloud and Adrian Carmack would start working on 3D models of the demons featured in the game. The models were later scanned into the game as 2D sprites. Originally, Cloud and Adrian Carmack were filming the clay models moving, you know, doing kind of a stop motion, but they would fall apart only after a few moves. It would bring in professional Hollywood 3D sculptor Gregor Punchatz to create some of the more complex models for the demons. Though excited, he was a little disappointed to see his work appear very low res in the game. Weapons would also get the same treatment, with id buying a handful of toy guns from Toys R Us in order to create the weapons. To get creative with their limited selection, they would combine some of the toys to create different guns. The chainsaw, unfortunately in the game, was modeled after a real one. It wasn't no Fisher-Price one or cool Nerf, Nerf chainsaw, just a regular one. Oh man, can you imagine how cool that would be? Just like running around with a Fisher Price chainsaw. It's only about, it's only about six inches long. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just like a tiny baby handheld one. Id, come on. Hey, Id, we're here for you. <laughs> drawing, drawing from some of their previous nerd knowledge, a number of the weapons were inspired by the comic Mage, which follows Kevin Matchstick, an alienated young man who meets a wizard called Mirth and discovers that he, among other things, possesses both a magic baseball bat and superhuman abilities. John Carmack um, wanted a militaristic I'm, style. I'm sorry. I, I have to stop you there. This is like the worst comic I think I've ever heard of in my life. This is probably why 90s comics had such a huge downfall. Comics like this. I mean, technically, without that comic, wouldn't have first-person shooters. Ah, kind of saves it. Yeah, that's fair. That's a good point. It's kind of crazy to think, though, that mage was going to be the comic that created all this amazing content i mean i don't know man it's exactly yeah now john carmack wanted a militaristic style environment for the game he would have hall buy books on military bases and bunkers and start to model some of the levels from what he would find in his research unfortunately these levels were cut due to being dull and flat compared to the literal hellish landscape that doom takes place in a number of the final landscapes and design of Doom were inspired by H.G. Geiger and H.P. Lovecraft. This was due to designer Sandy Peterson, the creator of the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, really wanting to have those like elements of that Lovecraftian. I mean, you know what it looks like. It's tentacles. <laughs> it's, uh, it's tentacles and, uh, you know, there's references to pornography and... Yeah, Doom. <laughs> exactly. So, all right, enough about that. Let's talk about creating the hype. In January 1993, it would send out a press release online promoting the revolutionary Doom, highlighting the seamless gameplay, open environments, textured maps, 
morphing environment, and more. They wanted the world to know that Doom was going to be the greatest game in the world, which is really crazy to me because I'm, you know, I'm living in this world of dial-up, even back then, where I'm thinking about like this massive online campaign for a game back then. I mean, that's revolutionary. That's huge. And that's really what they needed. You know, they, they, Wolfenstein 3D did amazing. And they have, you know, that, that motion. They have the train going. The train is making its way. It's blowing past that stop. You need to keep that hype train going to keep everyone on board. And so that's really what you needed to do was with this invention of now everyone kind of having internet <laughs> in 93, sending this out and sending it to all these different companies to say, yes, it's coming and this is going to be the greatest game. And so Doom would get its name from the Tom Cruise film, The Color of Money. Tom Cruise's character shows up to a pool hall with a case. And when asked what's in the case, he replies, Doom, with a cocky grin. Chaos ensues from there. John Carmack actually felt that the chaos is similar to what would happen in the gaming industry once Doom was released. Hey, listen, I love that bit of like cockiness in that as well. Like, hey, once this game comes out. It's going wild out here, just like Tom Cruise. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, man. Doom, a.k.a. Mission Impossible. And there were other names discussed before the final one took hold. The game was almost called Attack of the Attackers, but the id Software team decided this title was too silly. I mean, um, yeah, going to have to agree with you there, id Software. I mean, Doom just has this, this, I don't know, this voice to itself doom well it is and it it gets across even just the idea of it you you see the hellish cover of doom guy you know fighting these aliens back you know taking the high ground i mean it makes sense with it but you know they would have had this with attack of the attackers but even with the name doom there were some setbacks because in march 1993 20th century fox would contact its software to develop a licensed aliens game after only a half hour of discussing it the studio would decline the offer from Fox. The game would have been similar, a little too similar to Doom, but they would have had no creative control. Later on, Imagineer asked id to port Wolfenstein to the Super Nintendo. The studio was honestly more than ready to do so, since they loved the idea of having a game on the console. They hired a contractor to work on the port, but he did not meet the deadline after nine months. And Imagineer was less than pleased about this. Id could not get a hold of the contractor themselves. No one knew what was going on with the game. The studio would have to band together and do it themselves. And after three weeks of crunch and changes to the game, like replacing blood with green ooze and taking out all Nazi imagery, the game was ported and sent to Imagineer. Can you imagine that? Like, like, all right, we're still working on uh, Doom. We're taking care of these things. Wolfenstein would be ported. We now have to do ourselves in three weeks, change all of the blood to green ooze because Nintendo was that family friendly console. Because even in Mortal Kombat, it had to be kind of greenish, oozyish blood. It wasn't blood, it was goop because these were, I don't know, I guess you justify as aliens. Yeah, uh, yeah, just goop. Just, yeah, just, just goop. And then obviously taking out the uh, Nazi symbolism for Nintendo as yeah. well. I don't think they want to be associated with that. Yeah, probably not. I'd assume but not. So it's, it's a lot to do. Yeah, Axis powers. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot to do. So this definitely set them back to have to deport themselves, but it still kept them on track. And I just think it goes to show, I mean, we talked earlier about the prowess 
of these guys and their ability to code. I think that it says a lot that they were able to do this in the three weeks when their contractor couldn't in nine months. That just goes to show you the quality of these four and these programmers that worked with it. And just, again, Romero and all of them, they're basically all geniuses. Romero is a prodigy from a young age, you know, going to 11 to college campuses and basically knowing all the different coding bits front and back, side to side, and then front and back again. You know, just knowing all of this made it, I think, not easy, but it made it a process that wasn't terrible. The other thing that it took a little bit to figure out, but I think it worked really well, was the cover. As we, I had said, you know, kind of that, that heroic fighting them off with the high ground. The Doom cover and font were created by the late artist Don Ivan Punchatz, which was Greg Punchatz's uncle. Romero and Don Ivan would work together with an unnamed bodybuilder as a reference to come up with the cool poses for the cover. Don Ivan would struggle to find a cool pose for the bodybuilder for about 10 minutes before Romero came in and he goes, listen. Wait, so the Romero guy who codes is like, yeah, let me, let me show off the guns. So yeah, so Romero came in and offered some sample poses that you know, he thought of off the top of his head. Romero himself ended up being used as a reference for the Doom guy, and the bodybuilder <laughs> was the demon holding his arm. That's amazing. So it, it worked out in the end. And it's see, Romero, genius, just coming in. Bodybuilder, no, you're a demon. I am Doom guy. So it worked out. It's it's a cool cover, and I, I think it's an iconic cover too. You show it, everyone goes, that's Doom. Oh, absolutely. Like we know that. And 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 it led to, you know. You're wrapping this up. We're getting to it. And we're honestly almost up to finishing the game. Yeah. In 1993, in August of 1993, Hall felt that his vision for Doom was too derived from what he had originally dreamt of. So he'd leave the studio. To take his place, Sandy Peterson and Dave Taylor would join the studio to pick up where Hall left off. They'd help incorporate co-op mode into the campaign and create the iconic deathmatch multiplayer mode. Co-op and Deathmatch were not created until November 1993, along with the serial code, modem, menus, etc. During this time, it would reassess their overall goals for the game. They threw out lives and scores and boiled it down to one purpose. Kill everything that moved. They'd also go with Romero's level designs rather than Hall's. Romero's levels, though, were not totally original. Instead, just reworked Levels Hall had previously created. Before the game was sent off to production, it would crunch for 30 hours, no sleep, no breaks, testing the game on every system, and fighting off one last bug that would lock up the game if an internal timer would run out. They'd upload the game to the servers at the University of Wisconsin for online distribution, and this would crash the servers. So the college had to kick everyone offline so Doom could be uploaded once more. And once it was uploaded, it was finally released to the world, developed by only six people. Isn't it wild, thinking at that time, that universities were kind of the establishment for technology in a way? Like, they had the internet access. So you would have to go to the University of Wisconsin to upload it. And that minute amount of data they're uploading was so large back then, they're like, Everyone on the campus, off. Doom's got to get uploaded. Yeah, I know you guys are paying like a very large amount of money to be here and learn things, but Doom is here. So you, yeah, it's all over. Sorry, you got to go. Gots to go. No more learning. Important scientific research? Uh-uh-uh. 
We got to upload Doom. <laughs> so let's wrap us over to marketing. So the game, the game is released. Let's talk about how did they get it to the world. Much of the hype for Doom would start over the internet when id would put out that press release for the game in January 1991, telling fans it's going to be the greatest game of all time. As many were already familiar with id software in their games, this would cause a frenzy of excitement. Little did they know, they essentially had to wait almost a year to play the game. Even with this delay, the world was ready for Doom. And in June 1993, Doom would get a two-page feature in Computer Gaming World magazine. Journalist Chris Lombardi would visit the studio to write the article for the game. This was a new experience for it. Before this, they never really had any press around during any of their games, minus a phone interview or, or radio show that they did for Wolfenstein. Doom, though, did see its fair share of leaks. At one point, an alpha build would find its way on several fans' computers, and they would call its technical support, asking why the sound was not working. The sound hadn't even been added yet. And id would set up precautions to prevent the game from leaking further, with betas having password requirements to play and limiting how many betas they sent out in general. From these leaks, fans would start to create their own cheat codes for Doom before the game was even released. Even with these leaks and cheat codes, however, there was still huge anticipation for the game. I'm surprised that there were so many leaks with this because it was only a development team of six. And so I'd hope that there was no one on that development team leaking this out. Well, my best guess is you, you send it out for alpha testers or, hey, friend, can you check this out and see what you think? And then said friend sends it somewhere or leaves a floppy somewhere. Yeah. And I don't know, man. It, I guess leaks have happened forever. <laughs> yeah, it could be. I mean, it could be as simple as like one of these guys sent it to one of their friends and they downloaded it on a computer or floppy disk and left it somewhere. I mean, I've left USB drives in a million places. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I could definitely see something like that happening. It's just imagine going to a local computer, like at the library or something, and you find the first copy of Doom. See, I don't know, because here's the thing. If it was an alpha and the disk just said Doom, I would go, no, 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 <laughs> I am not looking at that disk. <laughs> I do not want Doom in my life. That's fair. We could have a Matthew Broderick movie situation on our hands for sure. So Doom would have four books following the release of the first and second game, written by David Abhugh and Brad Lineweaver. The books were Knee Deep in the Dead, Hell on Earth, Infernal Sky, and Endgame. Some of the books are loosely based on the first two games, with later storylines becoming their own creation. The first two books were released in 1995, and the second two released in 1996. You know, that sounds a lot to me like a certain Halo-y type of uh, franchise. Extra content in, in, uh, in books. I don't know, maybe a coincidence. I heard there was also a podcast that covered a lot of this material. I'm not, not sure. On top of the books, they also had a comic. In 1996, Marvel would release a 16-page Doom comic written by Steve Bailing and Michael Stewart with art and color design by Tom Grinberg. Like the novels, the story is based off of Doom and Doom 2. Lastly, we come to Microsoft Judgment Day. In October 1995, Microsoft would invite multiple studios like Activision, LucasArts, and id Software to their Judgment Day event. The cafeteria and garage at Microsoft were converted into a haunted house 
with each studio having a space to decorate as their own. Activision had a jungle that was promoting their game Pitfall, and the studio Zombie had a giant sphere that shot out electricity. Id Software had to go all out for this. They would hire the band Guar for their booth, where the band hid inside an 8-foot-tall vagina with dildo teeth. Anyone who walked by was attacked by dildos. Microsoft was not too happy about the id booth, but they still let them have it. The 90s, man. Wild times. Again. It was the 90s. At the event, a video was shown of Bill Gates appearing in Doom, promoting Windows 95 as being the most powerful system for games to run on. The video ended with the tagline, Who do you want to execute today? Interesting. Bill Gates. Listen, that's what you got to do. As, as Billy Boy, you got to take that over. Did Bill say that? Who do you want to execute today? Uh, you know, maybe. Like Bill, Bill woke up that morning and chose violence. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. All right, let's jump over to gameplay. Let's jump into what makes Doom, Doom. Doom is a first-person shooter presented with early 3D graphics. The player controls an unnamed space marine, later known as Doom Guy through a series of levels set in military bases on the moons of Mars and in Hell. To finish a level, the player must traverse through the area to reach a marked exit room. Levels are grouped together into named episodes, with the final level focusing on a boss fight with a particularly difficult enemy. While the environment is presented in a 3D perspective, the enemies and objects are instead 2D sprites presented from several preset viewing angles a technique sometimes referred to as 2.5D graphics with its technical name called raycasting. Levels are often labyrinthian and a full screen auto map is available which shows the area explored up to that point. While traversing the levels, the player must fight a variety of enemies, including demons and possessed undead humans, while managing supplies of ammunition, health, and armor. Enemies often appear in large groups, and the game features five difficulty levels which increase the quantity and damage done by enemies, with enemies respawning upon death and moving faster than normal on the hardest difficulty setting. The monsters have very simple behavior, consisting of either moving toward the opponent or attacking by throwing fireballs, biting, and clawing. They will reactively fight each other if one monster inadvertently harms another, though most monsters are immune to attacks from their own kind. The environment can include pits of toxic waste, ceilings that lower and crush everything, and locked doors requiring a keycard or remote switch. The player can find weapons and ammunition throughout the levels, or they can collect them from dead enemies, including a pistol, a chainsaw, a plasma rifle, and the BFG-9000. Power-ups include health or armor points, a mapping computer, 
partial invisibility, a safety suit against toxic waste, invulnerability, or a super strong melee berserker status. The main campaign mode is single player with an episodic succession of missions. Two multiplayer modes are playable over a network, cooperative, in which two to four players team up to complete the main campaign, and deathmatch, in which two to four players compete to the death. Four-player online multiplayer mode via dial-up was made available one year after launch through the Dwango or D-W-A-N-G-O, service. Cheat codes give the player instant superpowers, including vulnerability, all weapons, and walking through walls. So again, I mean, you guys know Doom. This, this was the most algorithmic way for me to present it to you, but you know Doom. Doom be Doomin'. Doom be Doomin'. So in addition to the gameplay, there was a story, and it's actually divided into three episodes. Knee Deep in the Dead, The Shores of Hell, and Inferno. A fourth episode, Thy Flesh Consumed, was added in an expanded version of the game, The Ultimate Doom, released in 1995, two years later and one year after Doom 2. The campaign contains very few plot elements, with the minimal story instead given in the instruction manual and in short text blurbs between episodes. And that was really common for a lot of games, you know, in the 80s and 90s. And yes, it's what, you know, like, obviously gaming companies are trying to cash in on the nostalgia factor. That's something that can get missed and glossed over. Um, If you go onto like Nintendo Switch Online, for instance, and, and play any of their old games, Sometimes they're just like you you play it and you're like, what is really going on? What is the premise of this? So, you know, I miss those books a lot that Mm -hmm. came with games because they used to have so much cool stuff. The uh, Pokemon one is really, really great. And I actually just kept that one because I loved it that much. That's what's so great about them is, is having those art books. Not only was it just cool to have it to see the artwork and other elements, but I love like seeing descriptions of characters. Or descriptions of weapons you find. I mean, look at Halo uh, CE and Halo 2. I mean, those book, even the future ones, those booklets were so cool to see a general idea of the weapons that Bungie wanted you to see, but then you found more in the game. And that was just such a neat element to have, to be able to see those on paper and get excited. I think my favorite booklet I still have is Yoshi's Island. I don't know why it's my favorite, but I still have it to look through the weird little pages of my childhood. I mean, you know, it goes from just simple side scroller to like in depth world very, very fast with a book like like that. Mm-hmm. So really cool. So in that booklet, you find in the future the player character, an unnamed space marine, has been punitively posted to Mars after assaulting a superior officer who ordered his unit to fire on civilians. The space marines act as security for the Union Aerospace Corporation's radioactive waste facilities which are used by the military to perform secret experiments with teleportation by creating gateways between the two moons of Mars, Phobos and Deimos. Three years later, Deimos disappears entirely, and something fraggin' evil, in quotes, starts pouring out of the teleporter gateways, killing or possessing all personnel. The Martian Marine Unit is dispatched to investigate, with a player character left to guard the perimeter with only a pistol, while the rest of the group proceeds inside the base and is killed. Being unable to pilot the shuttle off of Phobos by himself, he realizes that the only way to escape is to go inside and fight his way through the complexes of the moon base. As the last man standing, the player character fights through the onslaught of demonic enemies to keep them from attacking Earth. 
In Knee Deep in the Dead, he fights through the high-tech military bases, power plants, computer centers, and geological anomalies on Phobos. It ends with the player character entering the teleporter leading to Deimos, only to be overwhelmed by monsters. In The Shores of Hell, he fights through installations on Deimos, similar to those on Phobos, but warped and distorted from the demon invasion and interwoven with beastly architecture. After defeating the titanic Cyber Demon, the Marine discovers the vanished moon is floating above hell. Inferno begins after the Marine climbs off Deimos to the surface. The Marine fights his way through hell and defeats the spider mastermind that planned the invasion. Of course. I mean, I mean, what other, how would you expect? I mean, Spider Mastermind, obviously the go-to enemy for planning all invasions. I mean, that's who I always uh, assume it is at the very beginning. Spider Mastermind. Every time I load a game up, it's probably Spider Mastermind. (laughs) A hidden doorway back to Earth opens for the hero who has proven too tough for hell to contain. However, a burning city and a rabbit's head impaled on a stake named in the ultimate doom as the Marine's pet rabbit, Daisy. That's really sad. Oh, I'm just sad now. <laughs> Show that the demons have invaded Earth. In Thy Flesh Consumed, the Marine fights the demons on Earth through a variety of disconnected high-tech bases and demonic temples. Though ultimately the forces of hell prevail in the invasion of Earth, setting the stage for Doom 2, Hell on Earth. It's definitely a sad one. I mean, you, you think you beat the game, you're going to make your way back to Earth, you're a hero on Mars, and there's your pet bunny. Your pet bunny, Daisy. And then that Head on a pike. Yep. And what's great is that basically just becomes the fan-running story of why Doom Guy continues. <laughs> is, is just... It's not, they don't even care about Earth anymore or any of that. It's revenge for Daisy the entire time. <laughs> It's very John Wickian, where it's like... Was, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, it's, John it's Wick that. is Doom Guy. You're, hey, listen. Let's, let's start this. Let's start off. Hey, hey, it's software. You got lost in your hands. Yeah, for real. John Wick, Doom Guy, one <laughs> syllable apiece. Do I say more? Rabbit, dog, daisy, hey. letter D, Doom. It's all connected. <laughs> it's all connected. Honestly, it brings us back to Dead Rising, which... Every game comes from, as, as we all know. But I digress. Let's talk about cut material. Let's talk about what didn't make it into Doom, but might have made it into later games. Several weapons were left on the chopping block by the time of Doom's release, such as the knife, bayonet, the MG-88 enforcer machine gun, which was later introduced in Doom 3, the Unmaker, later introduced in Doom 64, and the Dark Claw, all cut due to time constraints and balance. Other concepts thrown out were the ability to leave bullet holes in walls, Doomguy being accompanied by four other Marines, the game's original setting on an alien planet called Titanga, and collectible unholy treasures. So those unholy treasures and coins were cut because they were more of an unfun collecting task. So imagine uh, Assassin's Creed 1, where you just have to collect all those flags forever. Oh man, you, you have triggered me. <laughs> yeah, so so that idea of just getting out there to collect. They do have some collectibles in there, and we do see collectibles in later Doom games, but they're more for parkouring and finding interesting things and finding, like, the dolls. Good call, Id. Mm-hmm. Now, the Unmaker, according to the Doom Bible, it was intended to be a demon tech weapon made of demon bones. And like I said, we would end up seeing that in Doom 64. So the machine gun, or machine gun, as I say it, <laughs> 
because that's that's the right way. Is that is that how you say it? Yep. Everyone starts saying it that way. <laughs> also known as the MG-88 Enforcer, is a weapon introduced in Doom 3. It's a machine gun that was going to be used for the original Doom games, and with it, there were sprites that we saw in the alphas, and it appeared to be more of like the MP40 from Wolfenstein, but it later appeared more of a, a modern assault rifle in the later alphas. And then next we have the Dark Claw. Like the Unmaker, it was supposed to be in the finished game and never made it. The Unmaker did make it in Doom 64, but we do see a concept in Doom 3 with the Dark Claw in the shape of the Soul Cube and the resurrection of evil in the shape of the artifact. It's a vampiric power-up that we found in Alphas that kind of works, so it's, it's a, whole, a whole dealio of it. And finally, the BFG, the big effing gun, it was going to shoot several hundred fireballs, but they said, uh, it slowed the game down too much, so <laughs> let's just make it just one big major blast. Yeah, that's probably another great id call. Plus, I mean, like, just playing that game, like, <laughs> having a several, several hundred fireball shooting gun, it would be fantastic. You'd mow everyone down, but would probably take a little bit of the challenge out. Yeah, it, it definitely would. And it's one of those things where you kind of need it to be like, like, like the BFG is, is that thing. It's just, it's just a knock on. This thing is ridiculous. It mows down everything. But let's not slow the game down to a ridiculous crawl. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the multiplayer. It knew that with the growth and popularity of the internet, multiplayer games would follow suit. So they needed to get their foot in the door early with Deathmatch and Doom. Id Software were the ones that coined Deathmatch as a multiplayer mode for video games. Romero essentially thought about what the game mode was. Players fighting in a match to the death, inspired by Street Fighter 2, Fatal Fury, The Art of Fighting. Up to four players meet up in the arena and slay other Doom guy countless times. And to this day, Doom's deathmatch is regarded as one of the most well-balanced multiplayer game modes. The day after the release of Doom, John Carmack woke up to a phone call from a network administrator who chewed him out for Doom breaking his entire network. <laughs> John Carmack thought of how the game operated for online matches would only need to be updated in the future to prevent networks from crashing. This was a problem that he would have to take care of a lot sooner than he anticipated, which, you know, it's so common now for servers to crash. I mm -hmm. wonder, you know, if this kind of thing still goes on behind the scenes. I'm playing a game right now where all week the servers have crashed. And I get to see the blowback from the community every day on Twitter. John Carmack's probably lucky that he didn't have Twitter. Yeah, and at that time, that, that network administrator, it's probably on fire. The whole network is probably actually burning down. And that's why the guy's <laughs> like, dude, you have ruined me. Yeah. And it's always interesting to see just, because you need to predict, obviously, how much server space you need in modern times, how much server space you need, how much you're going to dedicate. And you're guesstimating how many people will use it and how much it's going to eat up while also saving budget and how do you how do you balance those two things right because if you try and do too much to start and everybody just hops on at the beginning and then they mm -hmm. totally disappear it's like now you have all this extra server space that you're never going to use and it was just an expense for you yep now let's bring it to i don't know if we call this the alex sad section the alex joined the vinyl video game movement late uh, <laughs> but let's talk about me not owning anything and that's the music. <laughs> <laughs> By 
Bobby Prince would have a large hand in creating the Doom video game by both composing the soundtrack and creating the sound effects. Prince worked previously with id Software and other companies on projects such as Night Raid, Wolfenstein 3D, and Commander Keen in Goodbye Galaxy. Prince's reply to a post on Prodigy's music board seemed the most interesting, and he was hired to write for his first Commander Keen game without even having his music heard first. The next day, Prince was contacted by John Romero, and the two have hit it off since. Romero would suggest the soundtrack to have a heavy metal flavor to it, a little spice. He would give Prince I like it a spice. <laughs> I like it a spice we put into the music here. <laughs> he would give Prince a stack of his favorite heavy metal albums and told him to create something similar. The metal part of the soundtrack was inspired by the bands Alice in Change, DRI, Metallica, Pantera, and Slayer. Prince made several heavy metal demos based on the albums for Romero, but would ultimately be worried that the soundtrack would become boring from only containing metal music. Instead, Prince also sent in a few demo tracks that were more ambient, suggesting that the soundtrack could be a combination of the two. Romero loved the idea and ran with it. Prince would not have control on where his music would end up in the game due to the levels not being completed yet. Instead, it was all up to Romero to place Prince's already completed music into the game. That's so crazy to me. Trying to imagine like writing a song and not really knowing the environment kind of just having a general idea of what the game is and someone, you know, working on it, basically just say, make it heavy metal. I mean, yeah. what a challenge. When preparing the heavy metal music, Prince used his own life experiences to actually write the music, specifically with his time in the army and working in prisons as a counselor. Sometimes he would also read books about truly evil figures in history to piss him off, so he could then write music to describe how he felt. In an interview with Composer's Play, a YouTube channel where the interview takes place while playing the game. Prince said, I tried to listen and study as many evil classical pieces and evil soundtracks so I could get in that angry mood. I wanted to get mad. He wanted to go full Hulk. <laughs> On the other side of his work, Prince also took his job seriously. He made sure to never have the music and sound design interfere with each other opting to create sound effects that would not be present in the same frequency range as the music, but still allow the sound effects to cut through and be heard. Enemy barks and howls were used from the Sound Ideas series 6000, a library of sound effects. Prince would also record real-life sounds and mix them for some sound effects as well. In the same gameplay interview with Composer's Play, Prince heard a sound in the game and remarked, Do you hear that snoring sound? Part of that snoring sound has some pig in it. I recorded a real life pig for it. I love that quote. You hear that sound? It's got some pig in it. Yeah. <laughs> That's like such a like a weird, you know, audiophile thing. Like you've mixed music or been around people that have mixed something. Like they love, you know, those little Easter eggs just like throwing mm -hmm. in something weird. I I recorded with a guy once who he was like obsessed with mixing in metal chairs wherever he could. <laughs> so he's like, you hear that? That's yeah. metal chair number two. That's me. I marked him. That's me beating a metal chair with a drumstick. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I would only hear it if you isolate it. But yeah, that's really cool. It's a great job. Doom's soundtrack contained a total of 23 tracks that totaled 54 minutes and 41 seconds with no official release. Prince first knew the game was going to be a huge hit when John Romero played a demo of the final game for the first time and almost put his head through a CRT monitor when trying to see around an in-game corner. 
Bobby never expected his music, as well as the rest of the game, to become such a fan favorite, with musicians over the years like the Smashing Pumpkins, Warbringer, and Hexen all paying tribute to Doom in their songs. Nazareth guitarist Manny Charlton would send John Romero a tape with a song ready for shareware distribution with the note, quote, For all the guys and gals at id who came up with the coolest game this side of hell, kick some demon butt to this. It's, it's again, it's just so neat to see different releases, different people really taking that in. And, you know, we, I talked about this in Tony Hawk, all the different skaters and musicians who came about were like, yeah, use my music. Yeah, use us as skaters. Like, that's just such a cool thing to get into. And let's wrap up. Let's wrap it up. Let's wrap up release versions. Now, these are just the official ones. We got the unofficial ones coming up as well. But obviously, we have on the PC, the Atari Jaguar, Macintosh computer, Sega 32X, Sega Saturn, Acorn Archimedes, Super Nintendo, Game Boy Advance, Nintendo Switch, Ultimate Doom, which included all three episodes of the game, along with a fourth episode that Thy Flesh Consumed we talked about, Doom Collector's Edition, Doom 3 BFG Edition, iOS, Android, Xbox 360 Arcade, and Xbox One, and finally, PlayStation 4. Plenty of places to play Doom over a very, very long time. So, how was this received? When id first started working on Doom, they knew it was going to be an instant success. Since Wolfenstein had set the standard for FPS games at the time, and they could only improve it vastly from there. This did, however, predicate that the modding community would only keep the game alive for five years tops. Doom sold over a million copies upon release, pouring money into id software, with the studio giving many generous bonuses to the employees. Supposedly, id was making $100,000 a day after Doom had released. It was played by an estimated 10 million users only after being released for two years and was downloaded on more computers than Windows 95. Bill Gates was considering buying id software because of this, but later changed his mind. Valve's founder, Gabe Newell, was disappointed that Doom ran on Microsoft DOS and not Windows. Newell and a few engineers would create a port to Windows of Doom for free. The game was so popular that it was crashing servers left and right. This would lead to many universities and employers banning the game from being downloaded. It themselves did state, We expect Doom to be the number one cause of decreased productivity in businesses around the world. It even suffered from productivity issues because of Doom. At one point, John Romero locked himself in a room to play Doom, which led to John Carmack destroying the door with an axe to get him out. Insane. IGN UK would list Doom as the 38th greatest video game ever created, and IGN PC naming it the 8th most important PC game of all time. Computer Gaming World would feature it in their Hall of Fame along with John Carmack, as well as listing it as one of the video games that changed the world. Joystick would list it as the third most important game of all time. Game Informer would put it at number five out of the top 100 video games of all time. And the History of Science and Technology Collections at Stanford University named Doom one of the top 10 most important video games of all time, making it a cultural artifact. Now, Wolfenstein's 3D modding community went wild with the game, even though it was not easy to mod. It loved what they saw so they wanted anyone to have the source code for Doom, and even told fans how to create levels in their games. It did not stop there. Years later, 
fans have gotten rather creative with running Doom on different devices, since systems like the Game Boy Advance and Atari were not enough. Over the years, fans have ported the game onto a wireless Canon Pixma printer, an Apple Watch, a portable edge beveling machine, a MacBook touch bar, a graphics calculator, public access tablets, a Sony cell phone, a Kodak camera, a pregnancy test, an iPod Nano, and an ATM machine. A group of developers even created the Doom Piano, which is a functional piano that Doom can be played on. Finally, Nick Magnier ported Doom onto the handheld Playdate, which has a hand crank for firing the weapons. That stuff just always blows my mind. Amazing that people have the ability to just, like, go onto the refrigerator and it's like, yeah, we're gonna just upload Pac-Man or Doom or whatever onto the TV screen in my refrigerator. It's absurd that TV screens and refrigerators exist. I don't know, maybe I'm just really old. No idea, but... Regardless, long before the modding community was porting the game onto the Otis devices, they were modding the game itself. It fully embraced the modding community and knew that it would boost sales of the game overall. Fans were quick to create mods like the Alien mod for the game and a mod where Barney the Dinosaur was in the game telling you he loved you every time you shot him. That's nightmare fuel. By 2018, 22 new versions of Doom alone were uploaded to ModB.com, and it didn't stop there. Construction company Dirt, D-I-R-T-T, doing it right this time, uses Doom's open-source engine to design rooms for offices and hospitals, since the engine works so well with multiple design programs. Any and all first-person shooter games that would come out which were not from id, were often just referred to as Doom clones. Hundreds of studios would release games, attempting to capture the same lightning in a bottle that id had with creating games like Duke Nukem 3D, Star Wars, Dark Forces, and Shadow Warrior, but none could stand up to Doom. For years, Doom had been the scapegoat for the notion that video games caused violence, with many citing the game's use of satanic imagery as proof that the game as a whole is simply evil. Doom has been blamed as an influence of the Columbine shooting in 1999. Reportedly, it showed the shooters how to use a gun. There were also claims that they used the game to design layouts of the school, but this was later proven untrue. Many victims' families would file lawsuits against id, claiming the game was a murder simulator, but all cases were dismissed. Many, however, disagree with the game being cited as something that causes violence. You know, this is something not just in 99, 95, it's happening still today for politicians or anyone to somewhat scapegoat gaming as, you know, if you're saying that Doom back then was a murder simulator or taught you how to use a gun, you've obviously never used a gun <laughs> if like that's the way that you have to go about gaming to see it. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. It's one of those things now that is just a talking point. I think it's kind of on par with a lot of just, I don't know, like general talking points that politicians use about a lot of different things. It's been proven wrong. There's been a lot of yeah. studies done on video game and violence. And actually, I think they found that it's not the murder, like first person shooter games where you're actually actively shooting people. 
that cause uh, higher adrenaline. It's actually racing games and things like that that get the adrenaline pumping a little bit more. It's been a few years since I read that study, of course, but uh, this is something that's tired and, and old. Yeah, and it's it's unfortunate, but it's a discussion that keeps popping up, and I guess we'll keep having it in, in the time being if if that's kind of the way things are, you know, kind of going with it, or that will, you know, I guess we'll just have to keep talking about it. But let's wrap this up. Let's talk about level designer Sandy Peterson is a devout Mormon and simply looks at the demons and doom as cartoons. The rest of the studio were atheists, so they did not believe in heaven, hell, or demons. Valve's VP of marketing, Doug Lombardi said that his introduction to Doom was from his uncle, who is a Jesuit priest, with his uncle telling him, quote, you have a chainsaw and you can use it on 3D monsters. I mean, if that's not the cat's ass, what is? <laughs> Doom was not too popular with conservative parents and politicians at the time. It did not help that the day before the game was released, the Joint Senate Judiciary and Government Affairs Committee would have a hearing on violence in video games. From there, the Entertainment Software Rating Board would review Doom and give it a mature rating. Believe it or not, the ESRB was not too concerned with Doom as it was only on the PC. They were more worried about Mortal Kombat and the availability in arcades. So yeah, so since Doom was on a PC, which was thought of as more of a ability to control it and the ability to mostly have adults playing it, they weren't too worried. Whereas arcades, that was targeted for kids. Kids could go on their own and just have, you know, put some quarters in and start beating people up. So this was that that craze of like, okay, we need to talk about violence in video games because it's getting quote unquote real at the time and not knowing years later, it'll be much more real. 25 years after the release of the original Doom, John Romero would surprise fans with nine new campaign and multiplayer levels for the game through an unofficial sequel, Sigil, using Doom 1.1, the game's original set of data files. Sigil essentially picks up where the original Doom episodes left off. It was free to download upon release, and fans could also purchase limited edition versions of the game. In May 2003, David Kushner would spend upwards of six years conducting interviews and writing the famous book Masters of Doom, a book chronicling the rise of id Software and their creation of Doom. As soon as 2005, there were plans to adapt the book into a television series but the project never gained traction. In 2019, USA Network would approve a pilot episode for the television series, being written by Tom Bissell under James and Dave Franco's Ramona Films label. Isn't that wild that it was just released 10 years ago? It is, but it's, it's one of those franchises that I think just because of the impact it had on, I mean, maybe a little bit before you and I's generation, uh, but but ours included as well. I think that it has a lot of longevity, and there's still more games coming out. So, I mean, uh, I'd love to see more video game content like that. Mod database user Vasan777 was working on a modern remake of the first title, but Bethesda parent company ZeniMax Media sent out a cease and desist order against Vasan in February 2019 and told them they had until June 20th of 2019 to remove all Doom IP-related content from their page. Bassan stated their legal counsel said there was a high chance of winning a court's favor over the mod, but it would take years and cost an upwards of $100,000. Bassan feared the day would come and has since deleted their page. 
And finally, to truly wrap it up, truly, truly, Doom is one of the most important video games to ever be created. It is not often that developers predict the success of their own game, but id Software were looking to break the mold on what they knew about video games. At surface level, the violence alone stands out in Doom, but it was also the level design, gameplay, and multiplayer that would elevate not only the FPS genre, but video games in general. The studio outdid any games at the time and even outsold Windows 95. Doom was created by a group of misfits, rock stars, and dedicated programmers and designers that thought of sleep as a luxury, rather than a necessity. The vision of Doom was executed through trials and tribulations over and over again. It was created by men who eat, sleep, and dream in code. The game was so popular, the United States Marine Corps uses a modded version they created themselves to train soldiers, and companies like Oculus and Intel use Doom's source code to teach AI how to navigate 3D spaces. Almost 30 years after the release of the game, articles are still appearing about the game's legacy, and with the franchise revitalized in 2016, it's clear that Doom will always be relevant and always be a source for those who want to kill any and all demons that stand in their way simply for the sake of doing it, you know, or for revenge for Daisy, however you want to take it. And that wraps our coverage of Doom. So as always, let's talk about why did we choose Doom? Why did we choose this, you know, older game over a lot of others? And Derek, go ahead and start it off. You know, why not Doom? Doom has been like such a influential game. I mean, and there's just so much modern gaming that came from Doom. Um, It was like a huge cultural phenomenon. I mean, we talked a lot about how many businesses it shut down, how many college campuses had to stop everything just to get this thing um, on the servers to start. And then on top of that, it kept crashing everything. You can't understate how much Doom has done for gaming and just what it really did for 90s culture, which I always think is interesting. And the gameplay to me, it's still some of those older gaming or older like shooters. When you go back and try and play them, like if I go back and try and play GoldenEye or something like that, another like massively iconic game that was really probably mm-hmm. more in line with you and I's generation, it, it's like playing with the the 3D models, it, or they look so bad. But if I go and play Doom yeah. with the 2.5D kind of design with the 3D world and then just the flat characters, I mean, I find that game so much more playable because the other ones make me feel sick at this point. This one, to me, like has that arcade feel. It's something you can just kind of jump in, and you just kind of like shoot them up and have a good time. So it's just a great game, and I, I do think that it, it still holds up, and it's crazy to me that it came out in 1993. 100%. I, I, it's, again, why we really chose it and built it up was, again, it's the granddaddy of FPSs, And it's not just that it started it, it established it, it set a precedent, and it built it out as really one of the top games of the time that is still talked about. It is a household name. Even people that may not be into gaming that much, they at least know the idea of Doom or that name or have seen something like it because it is an establishment. And this entire crew that built it, I've said it again and again, are just pure geniuses in terms of just being geniuses. (laughs) <laughs> but also in the gaming realm of it and not caring about what other people think. I mean, having Guar like the Microsoft thing and just being 
way out there and understanding like we are the rock stars of this. We can kind of do whatever we want. And with the success of Wolfenstein leading up to this, it's a no brainer that people were going insane for it and wanting to do it and bring it to life. You know, going from a D&D campaign to the big kind of small screen of the CRT, <laughs> but bringing it out there, I think was a perfect way to do it. And we see it again. I mean, even the geniuses that come out with like Doom 2016 or Doom Eternal are taking what they did back then and bringing it to a modern realm. And I think whether you want to call it an homage, a continuation, an update, I think they've done it so well. And that's where the Doom franchise continues and will continue for basically a nameless hero that we all rally again, that we all rally behind. And that we really, really just enjoy. Also, I mean, honestly, rest in peace, Daisy. So that's oh, that's really yeah. why we chose it. Daisy, just just homaging the bunny. I don't. Know if, but no, I mean, I don't know if you remember. It's, it's my my dog's is. name is Daisy, or was Daisy. So mm-hmm. very, very. Uh, I understand, Doom guy. I would be floored. I would go to hell. See, I'd go to hell and back to 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 vent like meatball. Oh, hell and back man. for him, baby. Yeah. Yeah, so so at that, you know, again, there's so much that can be said about Doom that we see in every modern-day shooter and a lot of modern-day games just taking on the platforming element of it that we see in the later Dooms. It's just so cool to see the adaptation. You know, let's let's break it down, Derek. What would you give Doom? What would you rate Doom? What would I rate Doom? Um, mm-hmm. You know, out of 10, I think I'd give it a 7. And, a you seven. know, it's to me, it's like... I don't have the same nostalgia glasses or goggles that I that I would for well, combine like rose tinted glasses and nostalgia goggles. <laughs> We're making a new thing, new eyewear. I I just you know to me it's like it came out a little bit before my time. I did play some games on MS DOS, but not really. It wasn't games like that. I was like a real mm-hmm. young kid. It was like dinosaurs and stuff. So it's like I can appreciate it. And like I said, I do think that it holds up better today than like the games that I would have nostalgia for and probably would like normally give like a five, but a bump up to seven just because I have those memories. Um, Some of the things that make me feel like it's a seven. I mean, obviously the gameplay is great. Um, It's simple. There's a enough variety with the weaponry and stuff. You know, you can use your fist, you get the power ups and you know, the level design is really cool where you can kind of go around corners and, uh, run into like four guys and then you got to kind of like run back and forth to try and shoot them without getting shot. Oh, yeah. But it is a game where like I grew up in that era where you used one of the sticks to aim around the screen where this is like everything's on the center line. And so mm-hmm. to me, like obviously uh, games, shooting games got revolutionized by that technology doing, you know, just it was before its time. So you know, that kind of does bring it down for me a little bit, but uh, no. Uh, so if I had to give this a rating, if I had to go into Doom and the Doom mind of it and give it a rating, I would give it probably a da 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 out of wow, that, that many da-nas? Really? Yeah, yeah. Have, <laughs> having a BFG in a game, honestly, which is the way to go, the way to really live any game life, uh, subtract out that there wasn't enough gloom because uh, usually Doom and Gloom go together, so that didn't happen. Uh, but then I'd probably rate that probably out of... 
honestly spiders at this point because uh, they are the masterminds mm-hmm. behind hell and behind storming the, the base honestly if area 51 had had spiders as when they went to storm it if there were spiders there it would have been stormed so that's i feel like i just got like your insane manifesto i have no idea what you just said to me but i'm here for it i mean the, listen the audience understands i get that the other hosts i have <laughs> you you have an invalid rating system i understand it i understand that that's where people come from but this is the true rating system and that's where we stand Spider Masterminds. I like it. Research for this episode was done by Alex Kendall, Jesse Reiners, Evan Barr, and Richard Scanlon. The intro and outro music was recorded and composed by Evan Barr. And as always, great people. Love them. Not important, though. What's truly as important is our patrons. If you don't know, we have a Patreon where we have some bonus episodes, extra content, t-shirts, posters, plenty of cool little giveaways we have there, as well as exclusive Discord, emotes, and game nights that we do with all of you. And let's thank those people today. And we have Tactics, Sky the Bear, Angry Canadian, Grant Dillon, Mr. Choff, Cowan Fong Feliciano, Alex Harper, Dilfix, Nick Hyman, Tuna0317, Richard Scanlon, McChief, Big Papa Semechki, Climbing Spork, Mr.1898, William Kroll, Cameron Collier, and Mr. Toot. Thank you guys so much for the support. And as always, If you want to reach out and let us know more about that, hit us up. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram if you haven't already. And also join our Discord. It's free to join. We have a lot of fun. Alex and I are hanging out with everyone in there all the time. And we'd love to see you there sometime. Yeah, come on over. All of these will be linked in the bio as well as our Twitch account. You can catch me sometime in the week, this day, that day, usually Monday, Wednesday, Friday, over at twitch.tv slash sourman70. That is S-O-U-R. M-A-N-7-0. You can catch us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. Please leave us a review. It helps us out a lot, gives us great feedback, and we appreciate hearing from you. Absolutely. And with that, I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I'm your host, Derek Baker. And this is Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. <laughs>